after spending seven weeks on the topic of elders, we now move forward in the text. And we continue on the topic of leadership. But now we move from one function to another, from the duty of elder to now the duty of deacon. Each is a distinctive person or a distinctive role in the plan of God. And they are distinctive for a very important reason, each fulfilling part of his plan for his purposes. And so to understand this, we consider both the biblical text this morning, but also the historic evolution of what a deacon is. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I want to bring to you a message that I've titled, The Forgotten Leader, The Deacon's Standard. The Forgotten Leader, The Deacon's Standard. And please stand for the reading of God's word. As we read through this text, there will be much Greek today, but I find that important. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, and beginning in verse 8 now. Likewise, deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not fond of dishonest gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife, leading their children and their own household well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. You may be seated. A number of years ago, an organization was founded for the purpose of planting churches. And in those first 25 years of its existence, it planted somewhere between 10 to 15 churches. But in the last 25 years, so meaning really from about 1998 until now, it has planted zero churches. What has changed? What would change from going to plant a church every year and a half to now not planting a church in the last 20 years or 25 years. What had changed was that in recent years, that organization began receiving more requests for help from struggling churches who needed their assistance. Over the years, that organization was indeed able to help some of those churches. And in other cases, they merely just helped them close their doors. Helping struggling churches is a very noble endeavor. It's one that is worthy of a person and even a group's time and money. But we have to also recognize that in this case, it caused that organization to lose the focus of what it was created for. 
In fact, when describing itself as a church planting and church revitalization organization, a friend and I both said to the director, you're probably not doing very much church planting, are you? And the response was, no. Very simple, very matter of fact. How did we know that? We know that because it's easy for one task to dominate the other and eventually to suffocate it. Even if both tasks are very good and very necessary, and in this case, I would say the revitalization was good and necessary, and I don't fault that organization for trying to do that. But the same principle is found in the church, that sometimes the lesser aspects of the church supplant the more important ones. It was this reality that led to the function of deacons in the church. The leaders, at least at that time, found themselves distracted and disrupted from their primary shepherding roles. They needed the burdens of those other tasks eased or removed from them so they could regather and do what they had been called by God to do. And so in Acts chapter 6, which we read this morning, that is what we see take place. Some will argue that the title of deacon never appears in that text. And they're right, the, t the title does not appear. But the word for deacon actually shows up multiple times in that text. It shows up in the form of a noun, and it shows up in the form of a verb. Therefore, the concept is very clearly represented in that text. And we see the role given in order to support the role of the leaders or the elders. But the role of deacon... It's often overlooked. It's often forgotten. In some instances, the office of deacon is abolished. But when that happens, the elder's role of shepherd is then supplanted to take on the deacon's role as administrator. To make up for that, elders spend their time addressing the administrative functions of the church rather than the spiritual functions of the church. Because their role is viewed as supportive, the deacon's role, some often view the role of deacon as a lesser role, lesser in, in importance, lesser in qualification, and sometimes lesser in function. The deacon then is looked on sometimes with less respect and less dignity, forgotten amidst the other servants of the church. Hence the title, The Forgotten Leader. But if you look at 1 Timothy 3.8, You'll notice that it commences with the word likewise. Likewise. That seemingly insignificant word tells us that the role of deacon is important because we know that likewise is used to connect words or connect sentences. In this case, it is used to connect verse 8 with the previous verses of 1 through 7. So it causes us to move from the significance of elders to the significance of deacons. But it shows that they are both equally important in the function of the church. Likewise means the elder has his role and the deacon has his role. Both require godly work and both require godly character. Together, elder and deacon, by fulfilling God's call, what they do is help to orchestrate God's perfect plan by helping the church to live out its purpose, with each member of the body supporting the other member. In this case, the deacon supporting the elders. The deacon then fulfills a vital part 
It's acting like the kidneys in a physical body. The kidneys play a role in regulating the blood pressure. They adjust the levels of salt and the levels of water, and so they control the blood flow. And in doing so, what they do is relieve the pressure on the heart. That's what we see here. In the same way, the deacons function to relieve the pressure on the elders. Therefore, we look at three aspects this morning, noting their work, their character, and their faith, in order to see the importance of their work in the church. I want you to note first the work of a deacon. The work of a deacon. Verses 8 through 13, they tell us a lot about it, who, who deacon is. They say he must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. He's to be the husband of one wife, managing his children and his household well. But what it doesn't tell us in that text is the actual work of a deacon. As already noted, the functions of a deacon are found in various places including Acts chapter 6. It is there in Acts chapter 6 when seven men were chosen to free up the leaders of the church. We even have their names listed. And verse 2 says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And so what they do is they set forth to choose those seven. And once those seven are chosen... Then the elders or the leaders, in this case, actually the disciples, they say, we can now focus on prayer and shepherding. The work of a deacon is to act as a servant in order for the church to thrive rather than for it to merely survive. We understand that when we understand the word for deacon here. In our text, the Greek word is diakonos. At the most basic level, it simply just means servant. For much time, the word deacon was used in reference to anyone who acted as a servant. The Gospels, meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each used that word in this way. And even the historian Josephus, who was tasked with writing down a history of the time and recording the historical events, he used this word diakonos to describe those who would serve faithfully in whatever they were doing, not necessarily in the church. But the meaning of diakonos offers it really a wide range of meanings and a wide range of significance. It could mean someone who generally serves, like that of a soldier or even a policeman, could be described as a servant. This is a sense that Jesus uses that word when describing his followers in John chapter 12, verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant or my deacon be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so this is a general sense of the word as it's sometimes used. But at other times, it's also used to speak of something more specific, in a very specific sense. It is a word given or used in the list of spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12, when the Apostle Paul speaks of specifically of having the gift of service. Romans 12, 6 through 8 tells us that. Or when speaking of Stephanus and his household in 1 Corinthians 16, 15. And Paul notes that they devoted themselves to service, or in that case, diakonoan, of the saints. 
But then we have this specific use here in 1 Timothy. And this time it's used as a title, a title that recognizes the responsibility of a very official role in the church. As a title that is first used in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, pretty much in the introduction, when Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. In this writing, what Paul is doing is showing that there are two distinct groups of people. What that work has looked like, though, as a servant of God, has changed throughout the years based on the needs of the church. And this is where history is important. Sometimes to better understand scripture, we need to understand history. And so we're going to get a little bit of a history lesson here. Because the word of God gives us some basic rules about what a deacon does. Again, Acts chapter 6 is an example. But then we see how it's been played out throughout history. If that word means servant, then one could serve in a variety of ways. In the beginning, it began as a function of the church ministry of service to the widows and to the orphans, to the poorest of the poor, to the neediest of the needy. One man describes that initial ministry for our understanding, and he explains that in the early church, the function of the deacons lay more in the sphere of this practical service. What the Christian church had done is inherited this magnificent organization of charitable help from the Jews. The Jews had developed a way in order to reach those who were the most needy. The synagogue had regular organization for dealing and helping such people. They, for the most part, discouraged the help of individuals. Rather, what they preferred is that it went through the church. There may have been an authoritative issue with that, I don't know. But I also know there's a practical implication of that, of trying to reach the most people. It's said that each Friday in every community, two official collectors would go around to the markets and then they called on each house. And what they did was collected donations for the poor and for the needy, both in money and in goods. This material that was collected was then distributed to those in need, usually by a committee of at least two people. And if the need was great, then they sent out more men. The poor of the community then were given enough food for 14 meals, meaning that they had at least enough for two meals per day for a week. But no one could receive any donation if they already had a week's, food, week's worth of food in their house. This was a fund that was called the basket. There was another fund that dealt with those who were the most in the most emergent situations. This was a type of service that the church inherited when it began in Acts chapter 2. And by the time we arrive at Acts chapter 6, it really is becoming too much for the leadership to be able to handle, in addition to their other responsibilities, in addition to their primary responsibilities. And that's where the deacons come in. They continued in the first century. And Justin Martyr gives us this detail of what a normal routine Sunday service looked like at the time. And it included a distribution of food. But he writes, and on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather to one place, 
and the members of the apostles or the writings of the prophets were read, as long as time permits. Then, when the reading has ceased, the president, the pastor, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these goods. And then we all, the church body, rise together and pray. And as we said before, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the, the president, the pastor, in like manner, offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people assent, saying, Amen. And then there is a distribution of each, and a participation of that over which thanks have been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. Sunday services often happened in the afternoon, and they often actually happened around a meal, usually following the service. Part of that meal was participation in the Lord's Supper every week. For those who were physically unable to make it to the Sunday service, the deacons at that point begin to then bring the elements of the Lord's Supper to them to their homes so that they didn't miss out on that participation. This was the responsibility of the deacons. And then at some point, the deacons began to make more house visits, more official visits, to assess the physical needs of their people in order to really be able to better offer them help as needed. And then what happened in the third century? That's when churches began to have property. That's when they began to have buildings, and that property needed to be stewarded for the Lord, glory of God. And that part of the ministry then began to fall to the deacons as well, as, as being servants. They were in charge of caring for the facilities, maintaining them and the grounds, stewarding the property for the Lord, much like they would steward the offerings of the people. And then, if you fast forward 1,200 years... So the time of the Reformation, so you're Martin Luther, John Calvin, a man by the name Martin Bucer describes the form and the function of the office of deacon at that time. And he says, first and foremost, the office of the deacon is the providing of alms. What this office and ministry was and should still be is this, to take faithful charge both at home and on the move of what Christians bring and offer to the care of the poor at their assemblies on Sunday and at other times. And also what particular people, whether high or low standing, give to the church for this work of God. It goes on to say, and to distribute it to all the needy in the congregation, both local people and visitors, according to the general rule of the church, and also the particular instruction of the elders, especially of the chief pastor, he calls the bishop. And he says this is because the bishop and the chief overseers of the church are aware of the daily occurring need of Christians, strangers, and locals alike, and observe the help that can be given to them according to the church's resources. And these ministers of the church have always kept a faithful account of the income and expenditures of the church's assets, as can be clearly seen from the ancient Holy Fathers and the church law or canons. So first off, it's at that point where we see them being the stewards over the financial resources of the church, though underneath the direction of the elders. But then what Booser points or pictures here is the way in which the elder and the deacon actually function together. As shepherds, the elders should ideally be more involved with the people's lives and understanding of their needs. So in this case, they can offer direction 
to the deacons on how best then to steward and use the resources to help those that are the most needy in the church. And so the deacon then is a servant in this way, as defined by the word diaconus. What that service looks like may depend upon the needs of the church at any given time. But the idea is that the deacon, by serving the church, alleviates the responsibilities of the elders so that they may fulfill their role. It's really how relationships in the church should work, each fulfilling their function according to God's call and gifting in order to make others or enable others to fulfill their call and function. That was the idea put forth by Jesus and when he describes our relationships as serving one another through self-sacrifice. There's another aspect the Greek word speaks of in that work of deacon. That word diaconus, the word deacon, is derived from two words. It's a compound word. The first is the word dia, and it means through. And then the second word is conus, which means dust. So literally, what it means is through dust. The idea is that this word is conveying someone who is moving so quickly about their tasks, they're leaving behind a trail of dust. The other day I was setting up tables with a group of people, and I paused long enough to chat with a friend. That friend had been going through a difficult situation and a difficult time, and I paused just long enough to offer some counsel and wisdom and hear her out for that hard situation. And so we let the others kind of finish up by bringing in the chairs while we talked for nearly half an hour. In the midst of that, her son came up, and his exact words were this, how can I be useful? That's maybe a different context, but that's the idea of a deacon here. How can I be useful so that you guys can do what you need to do? Someone who serves, leaving behind a trail of dust because he does it so quickly and in doing so enables others to do their work. In this case, it was for the two of us to have a conversation. That's the work of a deacon. The work of a deacon engages and is both significant and serious because he does so as a servant of the Lord. And as with any serious job, there are qualifications. Because the expectations are high, the qualifications are high as well. As we read in verse 8, you will notice that the qualifications are similar to that of elders. But omitted from that list are things like hospitality, ability to teach, not a recent convert, and a good reputation among outsiders. What we do read is this. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. And so I want you to note, second, the character of the deacon. The character of the deacon. The consistency of this point across elder and deacon tells us something very profound here. The role of a person serving in the church should be done with a level of character that is consistent with that role. This is true for deacons. We see it in the character that's listed here. The character that this verse speaks of is consistent with the work that the deacon is asked to do. I want you to see how each of these characteristics is needed for the work that he will be doing. 
We see first this in the negative characteristics listed, that not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, and not greedy for dishonest gain. The first is the deacon must not be double-tongued. He is not one who speaks one way over here and then turns over here and speaks another way and speaks differently. It's not saying the, it's not saying the same thing twice in the same way, but not saying it in different ways. Some translations that you have in your Bible may say not slanderous. Again, the Greek word there used is diabolus. In Greek, that is a very strong word, and it's reserved actually for the name of Satan, who is known as the great slanderer, hence not slanderous, because he goes around slandering God and slandering God's people. James warns of this. He says, with it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. The deacon is called to act on behalf of God and behalf of people. He is to be in constant interaction with them. The deacon's work will take them into people's homes. And they will know the intimate details of people's lives. They need to know, or they should know, that that man is sincere. At some point, he may be called upon to give counsel, as all believers are. And he needs to be able to give counsel that is wise and godly. Gregory the Great, writing to all leaders, elders and deacons, as a spiritual director, should be discerning in his silence and profitable in his speech. Otherwise, he might say something that he should have been suppressed, or he might suppress something that should have been said. They need to know that he is sincere, and he won't leave there sharing any of their details with other people. And so he must not be double-tongued. The second characteristic here is not addicted to much wine. We're talking about an era where wine was a common drink. There's not carbonation, so there's no sodas. There's no bottled water. With no refrigeration, milk could only last so long before it spoiled. And very sadly, it was another 750 years before they discovered coffee as a drink of choice. <laughs> so when deacons made their visit, what did they drink? It was wine. That's what would be served. But in keeping with God's word to not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit... The deacon know, needed to know when to say no. Therefore, he could not be addicted to wine. And finally, we see not greedy for dishonest gain. That's a qualification given for elders in 1 Peter 5, 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain. The same is now true for deacons here. He is to be a servant of God by serving the church. But then Christ warns in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And so then he says you cannot serve God and money. Remember that the deacons are responsible for stewarding the resources of the poor, the food, the clothing, and even money. And then later on, as Booster showed us, they're responsible for the finances of the church. In our current era, 
we see that too. And so there's this twofold warning here. The, the first one should be obvious, that he's not to be prone to those resources so that he can have them for himself. But the second warning is that he doesn't misrepresent the church's intention with them or misuse them as they've been given by people for the purposes of God through his church. So they're not to be hoarded unnecessarily, but freely used, trusting the sufficiency of the Lord. At the same time, they're not to be used in a wasteful manner. And the people need to be able to trust that. They also cannot be done in a way that manipulates the people to give them more so that the church and its leaders can live in luxury, as some churches unfortunately do today. Now, because of his role, the deacon cannot be double-tongued. He cannot be addicted to much wine, and he cannot be greedy for dishonest gain. Instead, what it says is he must be dignified. Some of your translations say deacons likewise must be trustworthy or be worthy of respect or honor. This does not mean that people are to simply respect a deacon simply because he's a deacon. Indeed, instead, it is saying that his behavior should be such that it invites people to respect him. He must be someone whose character evokes respect and admiration. This word, again, a Greek word, semnos, is what that is there. It's the word gravity, as in serious. Something is grave, something serious happened. It's a word commonly applied to gods of the day who maintained a godlike majesty and thus were respected. The deacon here that is respectable is the deacon that is serious in mind and serious in character. The deacon is to maintain a high level of character. We could say that he's supposed to be elder-like because they're called to the same principles. Even in the absence of several characteristics mentioned for elders, the expectation is that both have great integrity and great conduct. Interestingly, their role may be different than elders. Their function may be more administrative, but their qualifications and their convictions are spiritual. It serves a purpose of removing any temptation that they might have in their role. We would not put a thief into the role of bank teller. We would not put somebody hungry for power and authority into politics. Actually, we would. Better examples, we would not put an alcoholic in charge of a bar. So neither should the deacon be one who is double-tongued, addicted to wine, or greedy for gain. Character matters, and so does the matter. So does the character of a deacon. That character is derived from faith. As I've said frequently, behavior is a product of belief. What we believe about God influences how we behave for God. And so the Apostle Paul writes, verse 9, They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And so I want you to note third, the faith of the deacon. The faith of the deacon. It should be a given, I would hope, that serving God in the church of God, that somebody would have a belief in the living God. But that's not necessarily the case, and I'll actually share about that in a bit. But what we have here is this element that focuses our attention on the deacon's faith. They're called to hold on to the mysteries of the faith. That single word says that he cannot hold to the mystery of any faith, 
but only the mystery of the faith. There's only one, which means we have to know what that mystery is that Paul speaks of here. If it's a mystery, though, how do we know that? Because we've been told. It's been revealed. There was a time when this mystery was hidden, but now it has been revealed. Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. And then Colossians 1, 26 through 27. The mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery is the gospel in which the Gentiles were included. It is faith in the deep Christian truths that we hold so dear, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and now he, Christ, is a propitiation for our sins. That mystery was hidden, but it's now been revealed. Paul says, the mystery was made known to me by my revelation, as I have written briefly. And that causes him then to pray later on, that words, pray that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul's not the only one to know the mystery. Stephen actually shares it in Acts chapter 7. That's why I read through verse 10, because we hear him sharing it, and they say that they couldn't respond to his wisdom that he shared. Peter shares it in Acts chapter 2, and then later on in Acts. And then, of course, all are tasked with declaring it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Because it is known, those who are to serve as deacons are to be holding to it. Verse 9 here in 1 Timothy 3 is present tense. Maybe it's better understood to say that they've held to that faith in the past, they're holding to it now, and they're going to be holding to it in the future. Specifically, they're holding to it with a clear or pure conscience, it says. That's the very opposite of those who have made a shipwreck of their faith in chapter 1, verse 19. Their sins have been forgiven, and they have been redeemed. So they find their name in the Lamb's book of life. But now they maintain a clear conscience by their daily obedience. By their daily walk, they know that they've been saved because their life shows it. John Kitchen reminds us a clear conscience doesn't mean sinless but walking in humility, turning from sin, and quickly confessing it. That phrase, with a clear conscience, it's adding these ethical implications, suggesting that authentic Christian faith is seen in authentic Christian behavior. It's seen in the adherence to the approved gospel, and then sound behavior follows. And thus saying, if one wants to be a deacon, they show themselves believing the Lord by living out that belief. Their role is that of a servant, and therefore, they need to show their service. In light of the false teaching in the Ephesian church, this actually becomes a very necessary point. For some, they at least at that time, for quite a while, the church in Ephesus had been led by men who were not holding to this faith. That's why Timothy is there. That trait, the faith of a deacon, is contrary to the false teachers in chapter 1. There's a church that not that many years ago in Canada that was led by a woman. 
which already tells you they deny the sufficiency of scripture. But what makes this more concerning is that the woman freely confessed that she did not believe in the existence of God. And yet the people put her in charge of what is supposed to be the Lord's church. It was called a church of God. There are so many problems with that scenario, but it serves as an example here. If somebody's not motivated by serving the Lord, who are they serving? Self. Which means she wasn't shepherding those people for God. She was shepherding those people for her ego. Leaders must have faith and must hold to faith or hold to belief. Romans 11.25, Paul writes, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It's interesting because in that verse we see this connection between pride and the lack of knowing and the lack of holding to that mystery. And yet that's where that church found itself. That's where the church in Ephesus found itself at that point. Not with the wisdom of God, but with the wisdom of self. So how does the church avoid putting itself in that type of situation? The very simplistic answer is, well, follow the word of God. But actually, 1 Timothy gets very specific for us. Verse 10, And let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Those who are considered for leadership, any leadership specific, position, but specifically as deacon here, they're to be tested and to be proven. Proverbs 17, 3 reads, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. That concept here is what we're seeing. That's what's in view. They are to be tested very much like those precious metals, that silver and the gold that is spoken of in Proverbs are tested to see their purity and to see their genuineness. And so this phrase, let them also be tested, is primarily made up of one word. In the Greek word, it is the word dokimazo, which consists of three distinct stages, though they sound very similar. Stage one is the actual testing. And it's important to know that this is not a physical, formal test, but rather this is just an examination of what his testimony is. Who has he been before people? What does his daily life say about him? And so stage one is the examination of him. But that word applies, implies a stage two, and that's when the testing has proved him to be qualified. It's the moment when upon examining him, the testimony says, yes, he meets the qualifications. And then this leads to the third phase, which is actual approval. That moment when it said, yes, he has been proven qualified, and now he is able to serve. That is to say, he is found blameless, it says in the text. It's actually the word used for justify when Christ justifies his people before the Lord. We read it in Colossians 1.22. He has now reconciled his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless, or holy and justified and above reproach before him. So the one approved, proven, or tested will be blameless. But what we see here is that it's, he's free from any civic charge of impropriety. That is, that there's no 
no provable charge that could be brought against his character. Only those who have been tested should be placed into leadership. They should prove themselves in their work. They should prove themselves in their character, that it is godly, and they should prove their faith to be genuine. It is a text recommended not just for deacons, but elsewhere for all people. Paul writes, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Let's pray. Our Father God, your way and your will is perfect, Lord. And you have revealed it fully through your word, giving us exhortations and expectations, Lord. And so, Father, I pray we would write those upon our heart, living out your word, your truth, Lord. Father, in examining this text, may we see the importance, first off, of the role of the church in your plan for all things, but also then the, the expectation, the importance of leaders, in this case deacons, for the role of the church in order to fulfill your plan, Lord. And so, Father, may we dwell upon these truths today, and may we see how your way is perfect in all things. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.